Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, Ed. Hey, Mike. And Senior Editor Matt Kenny. Gentlemen. All right, guys. Well, as always, if you like this podcast and you want to see it keep on going, please spread the word to all your woodworking buddies and uh, maybe head over to our iTunes page, leave a nice five-star rating and a comment if you feel so inclined. And uh, quick announcement, remember to send in your machinery and power tool-related questions for the June 21st show, which uh, we'll be focusing on those topics. So power tool and machinery-related questions. We've already uh, begun receiving a bunch, so get them in before we do the final edit on what we're selecting. Um, Now, without further ado, I have a very special announcement regarding our very own Matt Kenny. Uh, Matt, as everyone now knows, is an accomplished baby furniture maker, (laughs) and because of that... I have decided to... Not furniture for babies, but baby furniture. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. So any time from now on, from here on forward, any time that Matt gets ribbed about making baby furniture, uh, we'll be playing Matt's Music Box theme. There it is. It's very sweet, very beautiful, lyrical melody. Matt, that is now... Your new theme. That's my theme music. Is that the theme from Love Story? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the listeners are going to love this. They're going to love it. I'm sure I'll get comments pouring in about how they love the sound effects. Um, I prefer to say that I make well-proportioned, delicate furniture. As I was saying, this is Matt's (laughs) music box theme. Um, There it is again. Uh, (laughs) All right. All right. So... uh, I say we uh, we move into the uh, to the first question of the day. Let's get out of this nonsense. Let's get out of the weeds. The first question comes in from James, and uh, actually, uh, this question relates to question number two. So we're going to kind of tag team these questions. Uh, James wrote, "Helical cutter heads are expensive, really expensive. I'm wondering if it's worth the investment for both my jointer and planer." And uh, another question came in relating to this, and this comes from Eli. And Eli wrote that uh, he's read that helical cutter heads leave a slightly scalloped surface on lumber. Would these scallops have an effect on glued edge joints? So we're basically talking here about helical cutter heads on jointers, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit. Um, The term is he's using helical cutter head. What we're really talking about here are segmented cutter heads, where you have a cutter head and you have a bunch of square, little tiny cutters, carbide cutters, that are screwed in place. Typically, they're three or four-sided, so once they get dull, which they take a very long time before they get dull, you just unscrew them, flip them around, you have a nice new sharp edge, perfectly indexed, no setting knives. Now, the way that these little square little guys are arranged, um, they can be arranged in a straight pattern, in a spiral pattern, or in a helical pattern, which means in a spiral but with each little guy angled not head-on to the cut, but angled to create sort of a slight shear as it cuts. Now, because these are angled slightly to the axis of the cutter head, they have to be scalloped in shape so that one corner isn't higher than the other corner. Hence, for a true helical cutter head, you do get... Sorry, Matt's nodding off over there. This is actually getting dull pretty quick. (laughs) No, I'm trying to get through it as as quick as we can here because it relates to both questions. The bottom line is we're talking about uh, carbide insert <sighs> cutter heads, uh, a helical head being a subset of this category. Um, now we can sort of get on to the question. Yeah, they are uh, somewhat expensive. They are offered as a retrofit for most joiners and planers. 
Um, and let me tell you where I'm at. I have an 8-inch joiner with straight knives, old Delta, a 13-inch Delta planer. I like the idea of a carbide cutter head for my planer because of the longevity and also the cleanness of cut. You can literally shove a board in either direction with no worries about grain direction, and you're getting a clean cut. It's magic. No worries about grain direction. Yeah. No tear out. No tear out. What? Yes, I've seen this happen. It's amazing. Um, Here's my problem. The retrofit for a jointer, 8-inch jointer, is about 400 bucks and change, and you can do it yourself pretty easily. That's for your joiner? For your joiner. That is cheap. Wow. That's not too bad. For a planer, unfortunately, the cutter head's over 900 bucks. Yeah. Plus, it's not oh. something with all the gears and stuff I want to do myself. So then you're tacking on labor. By that time, you're talking about for 1500 bucks or so, you can get a Grizzly 15-inch planer with a carbide insert cutter head. Hmm. So that brings you up to the second question. Do you want a cutter head in your joiner, joiner. at all? Yeah, I well, would say uh, this is tough because I've I was actually recently, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a new jointer for my shop. Yeah, and I was debating whether or not it's a 50 inch jointer. <clears throat> well, yeah, yeah. When I before I decided to definitely get an old machine, I was thinking about getting a new machine, and I was debating whether or not to get a uh, index cutter head for that. Uh, you know, I was looking at. You know, some 8- and 12-inch joiners. An indexed cutter head. Well, yeah, helical cutter, like Mike's talking about. What did, what were you calling I'm just, them? I'm segmented just, cutter head. Segmented cutter head, Indexed sorry. cutter head, I might think like a tersa head or something like that. Okay. All right, so we'll call it a segmented cutter head. I just want to be clear for everybody out there in Yeah, so I, I was thinking about whether or not I should buy a joiner with a segmented cutter head, and I decided that I would not uh, because the joiner – for me, and I think you're the same way, it, it, actually, it should be this way for everybody, should never be a finished surface. It typically isn't. Usually it's coming off the planer. Right. Usually you joint something, the face of it, then you, you're going to send both faces through the planer. Right. So you don't need to worry about how smooth of a cut it produces. You do have to worry about tear out, but I have found that unless it's really squirrely wood or my blades are dull, right? I don't get tear out. Right. Fresh set of blades, you're going to get a clean enough cut, and you're really surfacing it just enough to give you a flat reference to go ahead and throw through the planer. Yes. So there's no point really in having it necessarily on your jointer, uh, is what you're saying. Not from the, the in those terms, but I could actually see getting one because they are much quieter, and the blades are so freaking easy. To deal with. Yes. I mean, well, to your point about the final surface, where I do sometimes depend on a final surface is when I'm edge joining. A lot of times I'll, with sharp blades at a really slow pass on my jointer, I'll go ahead and glue up right from there, which yes. leads to the second question. Do these very, very slight scallops affect a glue joint edge? We actually asked Raleigh Johnson, who did the review and article on segmented cutter heads for Here's us. Here's what Raleigh had to say. You betcha. <laughs> no, <laughs> Raleigh, Raleigh said there, there's no problem with it yes. whatsoever. Asa, uh, who has a segmented cutter head on his machine, I don't think it's a true helical cutter head, he doesn't have a problem with it either. So for the guys who actually have them, there doesn't seem to be an issue with a glue quality edge joint. And you were mentioning earlier, Matt, that you don't really care because you hit everything with a hand plane before you glue it up anyway. Yeah, what I do, it depends on 
a lot of times it depends on actually how thick the board is and how big it is. Mm. If it's big enough, like if it's uh, something for uh, like shop sawn veneers or something like that, I'll hit it with an uh, edge plane. Or if it's something for baby sized furniture, I uh, hit it with an edge with a hand plane. But for bigger stuff, I do what you do, which is just take a really slow pass over the joiner. Yeah. And there's so many cuts with the knives that there's no ripples. Right. Yeah, I do that a lot too. Uh, so I would – I mean if you have a, a cutter head like that on your joiner, I would say it's – like the, like Asa and, and Raleigh have both said, it's not an issue. If you're worried about it, just hit it with a smoothing plane. Right. And speaking of joiners and planers, the other way to get double duty from the investment in a cutter head is going with a combo machine where you have a single cutter head acting both as your jointer and your planer cutter head, in which case a segmented cutter head really makes sense because the longevity of those knives uh, playing double duty is really going to pay off for you. And, in, and financially, too, I mean, you can get a uh, joiner planer, 12-inch joiner planer with one of those cutter heads in it probably for less than you're going to pay for individual machines with cutters. It's not probably, definitely less. And you're going to get a wider joiner. Wider yeah. yeah. I mean, a 12-inch joiner with an index cutter head, Grizzly makes one that's in the 2500 range. Right. Every other one on the market is going to be probably over five grand. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to back the truck up a little bit because you uh, remarked that you know, you're never getting a final surface off a jointer. Now, the reason I wanted to back the truck up was because when I first started woodworking, I would joint a face, and then I would lay that jointed face on the bed of the planer, pass it through, and I would plane down to thickness just off of that one jointed face. Then, as oh, time golly. went on, I learned that you pass it through the planer, flip it end for end, pass it again, flip it, you know, and you do it. So yeah. that's what... Matt was referencing. I just because a lot of folks when they're starting out might not necessarily realize that. That's a great point. You have four quarter, you know, inch thick stock. You're taking it down to three quarter. If you take a quarter of an inch off one face, you're going to end up with a bowed and cut board by removing too much yes. stock off, off one of face. one face. That's a, yeah. that's a great point. Yep. Yeah, you have to flip it back and forth. So, um, oh, let me uh, yeah. postscript. Um, this is maybe a little prime the pump for a future episode because, okay, so what did I end up doing? What I ended up doing, I just ordered a set of Esta blades for my jointer and planer. These are double-edged disposable blades like you can get in modern planers um, along with a little uh, carrier that they clip into and then they mount in your jointer and planer. And for me, it's a retrofit that, number one, it gives me disposable knives, hopefully sharper and easier to install. And also, the way they set in the cutter heads, um, you don't need the springs or the magnets or all that. They either register off the bottom of the slot or off the edge of the... The slot, the, the top edge of the slot. top edge of the slot itself. Surface so of the cu- of what the I'm, cutter I'm head. hoping for is easier, more accurate changes and better quality cuts. But I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a retrofit Tursa head sort of. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Poor man's Tursa head. Because yeah. Tursa heads rock. Tursa head is basically the the knives are two sided disposable knives. They slide in from the side. They register very very accurately. Usually you find them in high end uh, uh, European, European machines. machines. We have one in our joint around. Yeah. What's back. cool about it is you slide those knives in and then you just turn the machine mm. on and it sets and the, the centrifugal knives. force yeah. sets the knives. It's kind of scary because they're kind of loose in there. <laughs> right. 
Well, it's kind of the same idea of uh, when you tighten the nut when you change your table saw blade. Um, a lot of folks, when they first start out woodworking, they when they change their really blades, they really walk them down. Yeah, yeah. You but think. really, you just you just tighten it a little bit and then let centrifugal force do the rest. You want to hear a, a, a gory story about <laughs> Ooh, <yeah>. joiner, <laughs> joiner changes, joiner sure. blade changes? Uh-oh. So I heard this one from uh, Stephen Hammer, uh, who's written for us. He lives in Connecticut, too, and he told me this story when I was at his place. Wait a minute. You know what I love about his name? What? Is that it is so much like the name of a detective in a 70s yeah. TV drama. It's oh, like, it's... next week, Stephen Hammer tackles an international drug cartel. Well, but it would be Stacey like... Stacey Keach. It, right, with Stacey Keach. Steve Hammer. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Hammer guest yeah. stars on the streets of San Francisco. Um, all right, all right so really quick, here's the story. So Steve Stephen has a really nice big joiner, and he was telling me about uh, another guy... That I think he shared a shop with him in, the, in New York City, and he also had a big joiner. It was a, it was a guy in the shop next to him in New York, and this guy had like a twelve or sixteen inch old joiner, and he was changing the blades. And a delivery or something came during the blade change, so he stopped and went to take care of this customer or the oh, delivery no. or whatever it was, and he forgot that he was changing the blades, oh. and he went back to the machine and turned it on. <laughs> And the bl- one of the blades came out Ooh. right in the forehead. Did he survive? I think, yeah, he lived. But oh, he, my but they, God. Yeah, obviously, they take him to the emergency room. Yeah. Ow. Yeah. Yes. Not good. Wow. That's yeah. terrifying. Well, something had the guard on or something. No, because prob- if he was changing the blades, maybe he took the little pork chop yeah, guard off. Or maybe he didn't have a guard at all. I mean, who knows? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Not nice, is it? Well, that's a pleasant story, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I say we uh, – that's that kind of – that story actually – Makes you want to get an index it, cutter it, head. It dovetails – nice, right? Sorry, segmented cutter head. That story dovetails well into our first segment of the day, which is going to be smooth moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we all own up to our latest boneheaded moves in the shop. And um, we're going to revisit some themes from the last episode of Shop Talk Live – uh, Matt, you're still uh, you find yourself in a sticky situation apparently. Yeah, so that was really lame. I, I realize that. Sorry, yeah, people are used to it from you by now. Ed. That's what happens when you get like older, I guess. Uh, well, you were lame when I met you. You get sticky. What? <laughs> now you get lame. Uh, so yeah, I've been making this table for a client. The table's basically done now. The client has seen it with finish on it. They absolutely loved it. So nice. every, everything's fantastic, but. Uh, I had to use epoxy to fill in some cracks on these giant walnut slabs, right? Right. So I had a little bit of trouble where the epoxy evidently did not cure completely. Um, you know, epoxy is typically a two-part glue, a hardener and a resin. And, I, you know, I don't know exactly what happened, but um, it's possible that when I was mixing the two parts together, there were parts of the resin that didn't get har- enough hardener in it or any hardener at mm-hmm. all. So one one particular spot, I uh, it was like a uh, just a little chunk of wood was missing, and so but it was kind of deep and long. It was more like it fell out than it was other chipped out. And so I put epoxy in there in several layers. Right. And you know this is just me being stupid. Uh, the second layer I put in, I noticed that it wasn't really hardening up the way it should have. I was like, you know. It's going to harden. It'll eventually harden. Right. So I decided to go ahead 
and put in the final layer of epoxy, and I reasoned, okay, it's hard enough, and when I put in this next layer of epoxy, it's going to be like, even if it doesn't fully cure at some point, it's going to be like hidden like the filling in a Twinkie. Right. You know, and it's never going to be an issue. Well, I don't think that logic is too far off because my understanding with epoxy is that subsequent coat with the hardener and that sort of catalytic conversion going on, I would think – I would trust that to sort of further harden or, or, or yeah. catalyze or set off that previous layer. Yeah, it didn't work out that way. No. So <laughs> it stayed squishy. And I actually had ended up having to pry out that final layer. Hmm. And then the middle layer had become this extremely sticky, gooey mess. Wow. And I so I kind of just dug that out with a scrap of wood and got out as much as I possibly could to get back down to the first layer, which was hard. Right. And then I filled it all up uh, with one final coat, which worked very nicely. And you were stressed now because this thing was – you're having a delivery date on this. It's a real commission. Yeah, we, it's a real commission, and you're and you're struggling to think – I mean, here's the thing about wood. I mean, we all know this probably about ourselves, that we look at a piece of furniture that we've made or someone else has made, especially around here, so, one that <laughs> someone else has made, and we are hypercritical. Super critical, like oh, but it's just you see this little, you know, the <laughs> the chamfer's not quite right there. So I was freaking out about this table, right? Sure. And I was really concerned that the the clients weren't going to like it, and so I took it to the gallery that where I met these people through the gallery where I show furniture. Yep. So the agreement was, you know, when I'm done with it, we'll bring it down to one of the gallery openings. We'll have it there in the center of the gallery. They'll come down and see it, and people that come to the gallery will see it and all this stuff. So I have to have it ready for this. And so I get it ready for it and take it down there, and I'm completely freaked out. And they walk in the front door, and it's the first thing they see. Instantly love it. Awesome. They love everything about it. And the thing is that woodworkers, that people that aren't woodworkers don't see the furniture the way we do. Right. They see it a completely different way. Yeah. So – they absolutely loved it. And what they were focusing on were some of the things that we had talked about, like the live edge and my treatment of the live edge, things like that. Yes. But they were just, I mean, just, you know, oh, my gosh, this is wonderful. if I could never get this at Pottery Barn and all this, all the things that we wouldn't think about. You know, I'm like, oh, man, there's that little gap in the joint there. And, <laughs> Shut up. And, you know, I, 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 the whole week leading up to this, I was telling myself, you are not going to point yeah. out a single defect to oh, anybody the entire night. Right. Um, and the other guys that have furniture down there, they're they're not they're less fr- of a traditional furniture maker like I am, and they're more mixed media furniture makers. And sure, and they were all just stupefied as well. Like, how did you? What kind of joinery is that? And this, that, and the other thing. And so, um, I was really freaked out for nothing. And pocket screws. But yeah, but we had this arbitrary delivery date. And I, I kind of wanted to get it, you know, I, you know, a lot of times you think, well, if I make something, I'd be hard to get rid of it. Right. And I've had that experience in the past, but not with this piece. I know Ed's telling me to hurry up. So anyways, uh, <laughs> so I was track. like, I was like, I cannot wait to get out of my shop and get that last check. And uh, it was an arbitrary deadline. I talked to them. They understood that because of the weather, finish it, the finishing process had been slowed down because of all the humidity we've had. Right. So they were like, fine, two weeks from now, that's fine. And so I'm able to go back and fix the epoxy stuff and and really get a nice finish on it. Cool. Anyways. Well, um, 
Mike, I hear you've been having some bathroom troubles. <laughs> why, why Boy, I've been that? hearing it. Let me tell you, I don't sit that far from the bathroom. <laughs> oh, um, my smooth move of the week has to do with um, I was making a pair of bathroom cabinets um, for our upstairs bathroom, something I actually get to keep for a change. And uh, in finishing the cabinets, um, I just wanted to, to get them done, get them in. And um, in finishing the cabinets, I ignored my own advice on finishing, which is when you finish something, uh, use a wiping varnish. Um, you want to build up the finish so it gets glossier than you actually want it to look, and then you sort of take it back with steel wool to get the sheen you want. The idea is that building up a thick enough coat gives you the long-term protection you really need in a piece. So um, as much as I preach that, I've even written an article on it. I teach classes on finishing, and but do I need to follow my own advice? Nah. Right. It's that's for other people. So I put suckers. I put a couple coats, a thin coats of, of varnish on there. I'm starting just to get a nice satin sheen. Feels really nice to the touch. And going, you know what? This is probably pretty good. I think all that stuff is overkill. So I put on some wax with some steel wool. Gorgeous finish. Just the perfect satin sheen. Nice and smooth to the touch. Got it hung up in the bathroom. Great. I was just checking this morning. It's been up there for about a week. It's been a little bit hot and humid. Obviously, in the in the bathroom, um, there's even more humidity, and I'm feeling it, and the surface is looking kind of dull. I run my hand on the side of the case, and sure enough, I can feel the grain raising a little bit for moisture getting in there, and it's just like, Mike. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, the good news is the advice I've been giving out is very, very sound. Um, the key you just here haven't is been following to, it. Yes, I just need to follow my own advice. So I was going back in the garage, going to get a few more uh, coats of, of varnish to the point where it needs to be. I'll, I'll rub it back out and get it back on the wall. So sometimes it's nice to make pieces to live with because you really get to see, you know, not just a piece when it looks bright, new, and fresh, but how is it going to last? How is the finish going to last? How are the joints going to hold up over the long run? So anyway. So I, my question is, Mike, that that piece have a fumed finish? <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. You know what's interesting about that, though, is, is okay, uh, so you already had wax on it. Yes. So I assume <clears throat> you went out in the shop and used some mineral uh Oh, mineral I've, I've done to... nothing yet. That right. was just for right. the podcast. It's going to stay yeah. in the bathroom the way it is oh. and probably never. Yeah, Michael, never. Well, <laughs> then let's, let me present this issue then yes. because I have a similar situation in mm-hmm. that I have to go back and fix a finish that is now under a coat of wax, and I... I'm going to throw myself under the bus right now, but I have a an entertainment center that has a, a, a cherry top on it, and it was finished in an, a lot of antique oil and then wax. Yes. And one day I noticed a big, I don't know, the size of a silver dollar splotch where someone, wife, had set something down on the cherry top that ate right through the finish in one spot. Wow. I don't know what the heck it was because I baby that thing like crazy. It's been some type of... Uh, poison she was preparing uh, for you for me. <laughs> yeah. um, so I know, now uh, I've got nail a... polish removers, typically the culprit in my house. Oh. It, very interesting. Acetone. It, it is yeah. about the size that you would expect to see if you set you know the bottle, the bottom yes. of the bottle on the. Yeah. So I was thinking, um, I've obviously got to you know re- feather in some finish in that yeah. spot. I was thinking I'm going to take mineral spirits, yeah. rub off the the um rub it all the, wax, the entire top off. yes the whole yeah, top wipe the yes. whole top down yeah, yeah. Yep. whole top and just now when i apply the antique oil um 
you think I've got to apply it to the entire top, or can I feather it into that spot? I don't spot? know. It depends on how much of a finish you built up. Is that stuff built up a finish? You use that. Uh, I put like six coats. The on stuff it. in a red can, yeah. right? That yep. stuff. Who makes that? Yeah. What's that? Minwax. Minwax antique. Oil. I love the smell of that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I guess if it's a, if there's no film finish build up, then I would say you probably don't need to apply it to the whole thing. But you might find that by overlapping the dry stuff, yeah. you get uh, discoloration. Right. So you might have to. It might just do the whole thing. Yeah, more the coats, thing. the better on a tabletop, anyhow. You're right. I mean, the problem is if you're not going to strip down the whole top, you've got one area without a lot of finish. The rest has a fairly yeah. decent build. I would probably do a couple few coats just in that one area hmm. until I get somewhat of a build, and then I would wet sand with the using the finish and fine sandpaper the entire top. <laughs> Just to try and reconcile the scratch <laughs> pattern with the entire top and then build a few okay. coats over the entire top. So I'll have Kathleen do that, and uh, I'll have her get on that. Right. So let me let me tell you a really <laughs> quick funny story about finishing. So yeah. I deliver my table down to the gallery, and the, and the gallery oh, owner's geez, there. your table again, Matt? And he makes furniture too, right, he, out of reclaimed stuff. And so he was making these table bases out of old Doug fur. And they're pretty cool bases, but they ended up – he had you know he had to cut them short, and so there's exposed fresh ingrain, which mm. looks nothing at all like the aged outside of the wood. Right. So the person he's making them for didn't like that. So he's like, well, I'm going to have to stain them. And I'm like, well, Ooh. don't stain them because you're never going to match it. Get some oil yeah, and put oil on it. That will darken them up. So he's like, oh, really? What kind of oil? He's like, uh, like uh, uh, linseed oil. And I was like, well, that might work, but I would probably use, uh, you know, and we started talking about that in details. Mm-hmm. So he goes and he starts getting these cans of finish out. Now, this guy's really into mid- mid-century modern furniture and old stuff, right? These cans of finish must have been from the 40s. They're Ooh. mid-century modern They're finishes. mid-century modern finishes. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and so when we were about Italy, they're really cool cans, you know, the <laughs> graphic design of them. I said, I said, whatever oil finish you use, do not use the oil finish in that can. <laughs> because I don't know if the oil it's finish— Produced you during know, the Hoover administration? Yes. Yeah, so I was like, that stuff cannot be good anymore. There's just no way it can be good anymore. But it was pure linseed oil, which never really— I guess if it didn't harden up, it should right. be okay. But I was like, dude, just go get some more I wonder if you oil. could uh, – it was fur, you said? Yeah, it was dug fur. I wonder if in that situation – so the problem was that the end grain was considerably lighter than the rest. And I wonder if you could mask off the face you know, um, and then fume the end grain with ammonia. The dark no, oh, I don't think there's enough tannins in dug fur to do no, that. it wouldn't react. Yeah. You'd have to um, apply uh, like – Brew some really strong tea. Put the tea in there. Put hmm. the tea on it, and then you can fume it. The tannic acid in the tea is basically providing the tannins to yeah. react for the ammonia to react to. Although the tea alone might might Dark give it a little, a little bit, bit of a little bit tone. But you're right. I think maybe saturating that end grain with an oil is probably going to darken it up enough to yeah, get it where he wants to go. My primary comment at that point was: so the client wants reclaimed. Lumber, but doesn't really want reclaimed lumber. Yes. It's, you know, it's like you got to clean this up and clean that up. It's like, well, what do you want? You want reclaimed lumber or do you want new lumber? Right. Anyways. All right. Well, moving on to question three of the day. This comes from Gerard, and Gerard writes I like to pin a lot of my joints with dowels. I pur- uh, dowels I purchased at the hardware store, but I noticed that a quarter inch dowel isn't always exactly a quarter inch. Sometimes the fit is sloppy, so I've taken to moistening the dowels with water to cause them to expand slightly. Then I glue them into place. Is there anything wrong with this technique? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Mm. Is that okay? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 
<laughs> okay, <laughs> moving the, on. Question yeah, four. Comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the problem is, is that water dries, and then when it dries, it's going to shrink again. Right. And so it's not, you know, most likely it's going to open up, and you're not going to have a nice filled up hole anymore. Right. So. Let me pose this this question to you, though. The devil's advocate here is, well, the same thing happens when you apply glue to that dowel. It's going to expand a little bit from the moisture in the glue. Far, and then far, the glue is going to dry far less than what he's talking about doing. I mean, you're talking about you having gaps when you insert it because yeah, a the, sloppy because fit. the dowel's misshapen, so you're wetting it to reshape it and fill or the hole temporarily, swell and expand. Yeah, it. right. And when it dries, it's going to want to go back to that misshapen shape it had. Yes. You know, because that's why it's that shape now because water left it and it misshaped. They probably turned it when it was still too green. You know, mm-hmm. and then as it dried, it it, it misshaped. Uh, they become usually they become like eggs or ovals. Mm. When, yeah. when you know they what dry. I'm going to pioneer? I have a new product for furniture makers. It can be plastic dowels. I'm sure that's going to go over really. They well. won't expand or contract. Think about it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and you can you can uh, laser print ingrain onto nice. the ends. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> now here's well here's a uh, a uh, another solution not involving plastic <clears throat> dowels is. <laughs> Get a, a dowel plate, which is a very crude instrument. It's just a, a plate of steel with holes drilled through it. You take square stock and you just like pound the bejesus out of it through one of the holes and out the other end comes a dowel. Um, Do you have to have a special hammer for pounding the bejesus out of something? You need a Stephen hammer. A Stephen hammer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you folks, need a Stephen hammer. <laughs> some folks recommend using a wooden mallet or something so you don't split the end of the dowels. They'll split if there's any run out in the grain of your you dowel stock. you got to keep them kind of short. Keep them short. I chamfer the ends, and more importantly, as I, I taper the end uh, in a pencil sharpener to get it started into the dowel plate. And uh, it used to be... Once upon a time, you could get dowel plates because before biscuit joiners, you would use dowel jigs and dowels to align tabletop glue-ups, even joinery. So back in the day, a dowel plate was a fairly common thing to resize your dowels to get them to fit. Um, fortunately, both Lee Valley and Lee Nielsen have basically dowel plate solutions. A little bit different, but they both work exactly the same way. And what's cool about it, you're paying 40 or 50 bucks up front, which is a big investment in a piece of steel, but... You're going to save a lot in the long run, and dowel stock is not cheap, especially if you start getting to oak, walnut, cherry dowels. And also, they're tough to come by. you got to go find them. You're not yeah. going to find them With in— dowel plate, you can make any species of dowel. Babinga dowels. Babinga dowels. Ours. And also in, in different diameters, typically a quarter-inch yes. dowel. Um, the dowel plates, they range from, you know, eighth to five-eighths in sixteenth increments. So I like it personally. I prefer three-sixteenths. Down oh, at do times. you, Michael? I do. I not know that about you. Um, so that's nice. Nice to have. Um, so get a dowel plate. And also, when you pound it through, they're a little ragged on the, the walls. They look some, there's some chatter marks and stuff. A little. But, but the yeah. fit is... Not when I do it. <laughs> but the fit is, is very precise. Yes. It will actually fit the yeah. hole very well. So um, I use my... I have one, and I use it a lot, and it, it fills the hole perfectly. I yes. will cop to not having gotten my technique... Uh, up to snuff with using a dowel plate yet mine well, come out gnarly and I have tried everything. Well, so here's the, one one oh. thing you want to do is use straight grain wood. Yeah. Don't get some funky crazy wood. Yeah. Use yeah. fine pieces that are straight grained uh like riffs on straight yeah. grain, you know? Yeah. Um that helps cut down on the amount of tear out and chatter type stuff you get. Yes. Shorter is better, you know? 
And I try to sharpen mine in a little pencil sharpener or something. Yeah, I did. Get it going. Get it going, yeah. And I've since started chamfering the uh, corners off a little bit, too. Yep, that That helps. helps, Yeah, Yeah, I do that. Absolutely. Here's some, I mean, there are some alternatives to buying a dowel plate that I know of. Uh, The guy that taught me to make furniture would buy mild steel Mm -hmm. and drill a hole through it the size that he wanted. And then it creates a burr on the bottom of the hole where the bill the bit is going through yeah and he would then drive it drive them through there and that would work fine that would do well and then our canadian friend hendrik varhu Mm -hmm. i did an article with him many many moons ago called uh uh how to offend almost every fine woodworking reader alive (laughs) oh no wait a minute that's not what it was called it was called uh Something about I can't remember what it's called now, but it was basically a rabbit joint, a pinned oh, rabbit joint, like fine d- drawers without dovetails. Exactly. Yes. <gasps> yes, is what it was called. Yeah, we did get some nasty. And we put letters. that on the cover. On the cover, and yes. there were letters about it. Yeah. About it being on the cover. Um, and what he gets is wall, uh, L-shaped wall brackets, and they already have oh, holes oh, oh, in them. Oh. Oh. oh okay. They already have holes else. in them, and then he will just drill out the hole a little bit better with a uh, drill. Mm-hmm. And that creates, again, burr. the burr in the perfect size. And then he gets a long dowel, and he puts it in the drill, and he drills it through. Whoa. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Interesting. Yes. That's really neat. I like that. He says that way. He says, because he, well, let's just say he's very detail-oriented. And if he, you know, he's right that if you get your dowel a little bit off perpendicular as you drive it through, you don't get a round cross-section. You get right. a, ovoid or oval or whatever cross-section right elliptical and so he thinks that if you drill it through with the drill that you it's much easier to control i'm gonna make a hydraulic ram <laughs> for passing my dowels through the plate <laughs> be awesome yes <laughs> i'm gonna get a, a huge monstrous device <laughs> an arbor press um yeah all right hydraulic arbor press well the next question Matt comes from Mike, not our Mike, but a Mike who you know uh, very well. Apparently, he spent uh, an afternoon with you, yes. uh, learning bandsaw setup. And uh, Mike had uh, approached you with this question: uh, When I resaw lumber, I noticed that the cut seems to go perfectly straight for most of the board's length. But when I get to the last few inches of the cut, my blade tends to twist out of square. It's no longer perpendicular to the saw table anymore. What gives? Yeah, so this guy, Mike, very nice guy, came to my shop for a, a, a day for some private lessons in woodworking. Uh, and um, one of the things he wanted to talk about was resawing because he was having trouble resawing. As Ed describes, basically the, the tail end of the cut, the board was getting tapered in thickness across its width. So we spent a, some time setting up a 14-inch bandsaw from beginning to end, and I showed him how to – uh, make sure that, you know, even if you – Michael Fortune says you can get rid of drift completely. Right. Some people say, I don't care. I'm just going to work with it. Even if you're the kind of guy that says, I just, I'm going to deal with drift and I'll adjust my fence appropriately, you should still try to get the blades centered as much as possible on the crown of the wheel. So anyways, this, I'm getting into the weeds now. But So I walked him through everything and – Lo and behold, you know, in in the end, I did not have any, you know, we were getting nice cuts. Mm -hmm. And so we started to try to figure out what the problem with his setup was. And it was, I think you and I have figured it out now, Mike, but, uh, or you figured it out really, I should say. But I was present when you figured it out, so. Right. I mean, the culprit is still drift. I mean, the blade is is wanting to cut 
in a direction not parallel with your fence. Yeah, and almost, and it's almost absolutely certain that his blade is too far forward. Okay, and so the the t in a sense it's pointing in towards the fence okay. on the infeed side. So what happens, and the reason why you'll get a straight cut across the top of the board, but then the the blade will tend to veer off perpendicular. It has to do with your guide setup and the way that a bandsaw functions in that if you're resawing stock and you lower your upper guides till it's just above your stock, which is what you're supposed to do, the blade is supported really close to the top of the board. The lower guide system, because of the height of the table and such, is the lower guides are much further away from the bottom of the board than they are at the top of the board. So if the blade wants to wander, which will happen if there's any sort of drift, as you keep your board tight against the fence as you're making the cut, the guides at the top will keep the blade aligned with the board. But because that blade is not supported at the bottom of the cut, it's going to want to bow and wander depending on which way the blade is situated on the wheel, which is why the blade will go off perpendicular. You'll have it nice and sitting at the top, but then you'll end up with wedge-shaped halves at the bottom. The culprit is still drift. Yes. And you can still solve that most effectively by making sure you have the proper blade, three tooth per inch, nice and sharp, new blade, center it on your wheels, and align the blade, line the fence to your slot mm-hmm. as best as you can. That's a good starting point. Yeah, the way I checked them, uh, there's a you know a couple of different ways you can try to get that blade centered on the wheel. And on a 14-inch bandsaw, it's more of a problem because they have more crown yeah, than a, a bigger bandsaw. Yeah, it's a narrow landing area to try to hit. And uh, the way I've begun to do it is rather than fiddling with that adjustment knob and trying to eyeball it, I just take a piece of wood, run a marking gauge down the edge, and cut on that line. This is the way a lot of people set their fences up. That's the way I did it for years. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I do is I make that cut, and I can see then how far off my blade is. I adjust my blade, make another cut. And I know, you know, because if the blade, if the if the board ends up canted one way, it means the blade's too far forward. Right. If it ends up canted the other way, it means the blade's too far and back. And to be clear, the adjustment you're talking about is the adjustment for the upper wheel that yes. the, the tilts, tilts the wheel. That tilts the, the wheel, wheel yeah. in or out. And then you just remake those cuts repeatedly, and you can slowly adjust it and oh. get it almost dead perfect in the center. Oh, interesting. So that's how I've begun to do it because it's I, I find trying to – usually the, the, the wheel housing and all this stuff obscures your vision of the wheel right. and the blade's location on Plus it. Plus you have the gullets, and I never know if I'm centering the entire blade or the solid part of the blade behind the gullet to the back. I don't know, but that's a – I was – I took it halfway there the way I learned – and when I had the 14 inch saw, I did it religiously as you draw a line parallel to the edge of a board, you make a cut. You hold that board in place and you adjust your fence to the yeah. line of that cut without ever trying to think that I could straighten things out a little bit. And um, it's funny, on the my newer, bigger bandsaw, I was a little bit concerned because the crown was very, very slight. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh, how am I going to adjust for drift and all this kind of stuff if I don't have a crown? And it turns out that it cuts for some reason, very, very straight, and I really don't goof around with drift anymore. I sort of keep it centered up, keep my fence aligned to my miter slot. And, yeah, uh, bigger bandsaw is easier to set up, I, I think. guess so. I yeah. think so, yeah. <laughs> That's why gullet reminds me something my nephews say when food is good. They say, get in my gullet. <laughs> These little kids, you know, they're like <laughs> seven, eight years old. <laughs> I, I want to I wanna point out something that Matt has often been heard mumbling to himself around the shop. <laughs> 
French fried potatoes. <laughs> I do say that a lot. What I was love. that from? Sling blade? Sling blade. Yes. French fried potatoes. <laughs> Sometimes you'll be in the, in the in the bench room and suddenly you'll you think you're alone and you hear <laughs> from the uh, the neighboring room French fried potatoes. And it just scares the heck out of you. I love that um, movie. And he also says, "Could you make me some biscuits?" <laughs> it is a good movie. Um, all right, so listen. Let's head into our uh, next segment of the day, and that's going to be all-time favorite tool of all time for this week, where we pen romantic preludes to our favorite, most cherished tools. Preludes. Yeah, why not? Because a prelude is the thing that comes at the beginning. Well, it could be you do the prelude, and then you talk about your favorite tool. That's what's in your ice cream. (laughs) That's the kind of pie I like. I like prelude pie. Prelude (laughs) pecan. All right, all right, all right, all right. God. <laughs> no, it's cookies. Probably preludes. Um, well, folks, uh, don your buckle hats, buckle shoes, and frilly shirts from the 18th century because Matt Kenny's got something period appropriate for you. Oh, that's, okay, for a minute I couldn't remember what my favorite tool was this week. I was like, what is it? This show has reached a new level of professionalism. <laughs> right. It's a draw knife and a spoke shave. Two tools. I'm okay. cheating. Two tools. Cause I, so I was, again, you can't play your little music now because the table's giant. And these two <sighs> giant walnut slabs for the tabletop. And I had to – the sapwood was still on them, but the sapwood was rotten. So I had to get rid of the sapwood. So the first thing I did and was – you still wanted to keep the little wavy edge on Yes. Yeah. What the, this was the, the – the, the, the client wanted what the – it's a married couple. And what the wife wanted was a subtle live edge. I was like, I nice. don't know. okay, I don't know what that is, but the I'll wife it out. is is always the client. Exactly, mm. always. I mean, it's you're always dealing. Typically, you're dealing with a couple when you're talking about a commission. You always listen to the wife. Yes. When I deliver the table, they you don't can have send your angry emails about Mike's Mike sexist Pekovich. comments to Michael no, Pekovich. It's care they, of <laughs> no, they are they are the decision, the true decision makers in the family. Always yeah, true in my household. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so when you, I have a plan for how I'm going to get them to. Well, I'm not going to talk about it. I'll tell you later about. I'm gonna, when I deliver the table, they don't have chairs yet, yeah. so I'm just going to do some drawings, really nice uh, perspective drawings of different chairs, and just leave them. Make with it, them. make a chair and leave it. Oh, did I drop yeah. these? Oh, <laughs> make oh a let chair. me just get those. Those are just some old <laughs> chair drawings of mine. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, draw knife. So you know, this is walnut. So the sapwood was maybe two inches. An inch and a half, two inches. So I took the draw knife, and it so easily pulled off all the rotten sapwood. And the nice thing is, is that it was more or less breaking following that curvy, waney edge. Yes. And so then uh, it was fantastic for that. Just you know, it's following the grain. Really aggressive, following the grain, yeah. really fast work. And then uh, after, when I got down to good wood, I broke out the spoke shave. And just cleaned up the edges to get rid of the tear out, a little bit of tear out and stuff like that. And what that did was leave a really nice faceted texture yeah. on the edges. Uh, and then I, unfortunately, you know, I couldn't leave it like that because it just wasn't quite smooth enough. So I sanded it with just sandpaper, a single sheet, not folded over anything on my with under my fingers. Okay. Just trying yeah. not to get rid of the facets, but the spoke shave and the and the draw knife were absolutely fantastic for that. Just really, the 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 the, the draw knife is fantastic at rapid stock removal. 
Yes. Really and you can good. actually get some decent control with a with a draw knife. Yes. I, I use it bevel down, and you, you're able to, by writing on that bevel and levering the handles, you can really control the depth of cut pretty well. Yeah, when you do it bevel up, this is what I, a little bit of trouble I was having, is that, you know, when it's bevel up, it's a wedge, and, it, and it's going to want to dig down, yes. especially if the grain is going down. <laughs> right. So I was having trouble where it was just ended up getting too deep. It takes a little bit of finessing to figure out exactly, but it's kind of like a spoke shave. You know, yes. spoke shave, there's that one little spot. In the sweet spot. Sweet spot where it doesn't cut down any deeper than you want it to, and it just zzz, zzz. Right. Yeah. Now, how do you, um, uh, you know, I think it's a good question. How do you sharpen a, uh, a draw knife properly? Uh, what's, the, what's the general broad strokes for the technique? You ask Peter Galbert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I think Peter Galbert actually sharpened our draw knife for us because mm-hmm. he was doing an article on that or something, right, Mike? Oh, for the chair making article. For the chair making article. Okay. I think he sharpened the draw knife. Or you know what? I think uh, for, uh, former editor Ken Saint Ange went up there. Yes. And he showed Ken how to sharpen it. So it was actually sharpened. It's one of those tools mm-hmm. I have no idea. I wouldn't. What I would do is I'd wait till Kelly used it. Oh, that's right. You can do the Kelly technique. Wait, wait. (laughs) Let me reenact this from the last podcast. Okay. Um, Matt, you're Kelly. Okay. And I'm whoever. Okay. So we're back in the shop. We're working together at the bench. Oh, God. I can't. I can never get this draw knife sharpened right. I don't know what the heck is just trying to do. Oh, well, let me, let me show you how to do that. Oh, oh, thanks. Yes. And then, boom, (laughs) Kelly does it. (laughs) All right. So uh, let's, let's move over to Mike. Mike, what's your. All-time favorite tool of all time for this week. Uh, it's it's more of a product than a tool. Okay. It is uh, Horton Ball Tip Brass Hinges. Not a sponsor? Uh, not a sponsor. Horton <laughs> Brass is uh, located in Connecticut. Just the ball tip ones? Small, or? I think still family-run company. Um, <clears throat> well, these happen to be ball tip hinges. I realize that every time I do a project with doors, I don't really think about the hinges until I'm into it. And then it's always this continued process of rediscovery. Oh, what hinges am I going to use? What catalog? I go through four or five catalogs. I find them. And I realize that I've been sort of always sort of ending up with Horton brass butt hinges because they're very high quality, pretty inexpensive. 13 bucks for a pair of hinges, including the screws, which in the gamut of That's hinges, insane. I think it's, it's yeah. a, a pretty good Really deal. nice hinges, too. And I've also realized that in terms of sizes, you always look at the available sizes and pick one. And it's like, oh. I always pick two-inch wide Horton brass hinges, typically ball tip. And so I said, wow, instead of ordering just one pair for this door that I'm doing, I'm going to order a bunch. And in addition, I made a little uh, hinge mortise routing jig uh, when I was teaching in class for a two-inch hinge. So I said, wow, I finally realized through all these years that's my favorite hinge. But here's the best part. Is that it's it's advice we print every single time we have an article on on mounting hinges and this kind of stuff, and that's when you're setting the hinges. You don't use those little brass screws that come with the hinges because they're too soft. You're going to strip them out or, or break them. Instead, use a steel screw the exact same size as your brass screw, and then remove them and finally insert your brass screws when you're done. Yeah, guess what? You know where am I going to find these stupid steel screws? It's advice I know is good, but I never follow it because I'm not going to run to the hardware store and take my little brass screw with me and find a steel screw exactly the same size. Which is incidentally what I do, spending and, like 40 minutes. Yeah, and thread cut. <laughs> so guess what? I use my brass screws. I typically end up stripping them out now and then um, and living with it. These hinges 
come from Horton Brasses, and here's this red plastic bag along with the brass screws. They gave me a little bag of steel screws for setting my hinges. It's Very like nice. That in and of itself is worth the price of admission. And the other reason I really like the company, a while back I was uh, buying some hardware for two different pieces. One was a period piece. One was arts and crafts. So some of the stuff was like a bright brass, and the other was like a dark patina uh, finish. And I got a call from a woman who was packing the order and said, I saw you got two different patinas on this hardware here. I just want to make sure it wasn't a mistake. It's like, how cool is that? Right. So um, it's interesting what you say that you often find yourself waiting till the end to buy the hinges. Yeah. Because I used to be that way too, but then I started using knife hinges a lot. And I, this would be another great smooth move. Uh, because I did it more than once, I discovered that you cannot wait until you have the cabinet constructed <laughs> to buy your knife hinges. Why, why is that? Because they are impossible to mortise <laughs> for if the cabinet is glued together. Oh, okay. So I now know that you have to buy all your hardware before you start making the cabinets. I hope it only took one project for you to sort of get into that habit. No, <laughs> I did not. I did it on more more than one cabinet. Uh, in fact, one I did it. It was such I, it was such a disaster that I just trashed it. Ouch! Just trashed it and re, re, completely remade it. But um, uh, but I get uh, I, I have a, a certain thing for a certain hinge too, and that's uh, the Sanderson hinges, which are made by a dude out in California in Fort Bragg, and they are just absolutely wonderful brass. Knife hinges, and the what I really like about them is that the washer between the two hinge leaves comes off the pin, and then because the gap you want around the door is equal to the thickness of the washer on the on a knife hinge. Okay, and so you can take that washer off, and he sends you an extra pair of them. So you have four washers, and I use those to dial in the height of the door before you mortise for the hinges. Okay. And because it, that, because of the the nature of the knife hinge, your gap top and bottom of the door has to be, to be dead on. It has to be dead on. Okay. If it's too small, then the door won't the, the hinge won't go on properly. Okay. And if it's too big, then your your door can will go blah, 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 up and down. Okay. Because the knife hinges I'm familiar with, which are also really high quality, the the washer is sort of attached attached to, to the knife hinge itself. Yeah, oh, yeah, cool. but these come off and it makes it so easy to <laughs> dial in the gap around the door on all four sides. I mean, oh, it's cool. wonderful. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, moving on to the next question. This comes from David and David wrote, "I recently built Matt Kenny's shooting board from issue 214. Question: What's the best plane to use with this thing? I looked at the specialty plane from Lee Nielsen and it's way out of my price range. Any other options?" So, Shooting board. What do yeah. you? Sp- First what do you of use? all, you don't pronounce my mom's name. Was it Mike? Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, right. Matt's mommy wrote this question in to promote his articles in fine woodworking. It's Mika. Um, anyways, uh, so I get asked this question a lot, actually. Um, and what I tell people is that what you want to so that. The most First, what what plane is he talking? He's talking about that. Oh yeah, crazy yeah, yeah. Lee Nielsen, the Lee right Nielsen, angle guy. I can't remember the na- the number, but it's a reproduction of an old Stanley that was made. It was a Stanley plane that was matched to a iron uh, shooting board, right, with a track on it, and it's you know it's got like a, a handle on it, and it's 
it's sort of an L-shaped Benson uh, base yep. in a diagonal handle. In a diagonal handle. And it's freaking awesome. Yeah. It is unbelievable. Weighs about 75 pounds. It does. Yeah. They actually send a person that helps you move it. And you can slice pastrami with that thing. <laughs> you can. They actually pack it. I, I do know this because I, I saw Kramer, this in a video. Kramer yeah. had one on yes. Seinfeld. <laughs> they, they pack it in a wooden little wooden box. They do. Because it's really? so darn heavy and oh, big. Cool. Yeah. yeah. But it's a fantastic yeah. plane. It but is. that thing is, is a little pricey. It's about five bills. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I would love to have one one day, but uh, not yet. Right. I have a uh, another plane they make, which is like a an iron box, sort of. Yeah. It's an old-style miter plane, uh, which is less expensive. With a little hot dog handle With on it? With a hot dog handle. Cool. And actually, the, the, these two planes are good examples of one of the things I tell people when they ask about what plane they should get. Uh, one, is, one of the most important things is comfort. Uh, I started out using a number four uh, bench plane. Yes. And bench planes actually, if they're sharp, they do a fine job on end grain. The, the surface they leave behind is absolutely fine. It's, so it's, there's, in that way, there's no advantage to bevel up or bevel down. But bench planes are not made to be held on their sides. And I would start to get cramps and bruises on my hand when I used it too much on the shooting board. Yeah, you're board. grabbing the, the side of the plane. There's not a whole lot of purchase there. Right. And, right. Yeah. And so it becomes very uncomfortable. So um, so one thing I tell people is just go for comfort. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, uh, Veritas and Lee Nielsen both make bevel-up planes, like a bevel-up jack is what I would recommend. But I know you guys use the bevel-up smoothers. Yes. Um, bevel up jacks or bevel up smoothers work fine because if both companies make them to be held on their side. Huh. Uh, you could also fashion a homemade hot dog uh, for for them if you okay. wanted to. All right. Uh, but Lee Nielsen sells a hot dog that fits their bevel up planes, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know uh, who uses one of those is uh, uh, Tim Rousseau. He has the little add-on hot dog hot doggy handle. Yeah, it's the same one I believe that's made for the Iron Miter plane. Okay. Uh, Lee Valley. The Marvel Verit- superhero. Yes. The Iron Miter. The Iron Miter plane. It's, and that's a plane you have. <laughs> I have the Veritas version. Oh, okay. But I, no, but the one I use now is the Iron Miter plane from Lee Nielsen. Okay. Yes. Uh, but that's solely – I got that plane because my wife wanted to get me a really nice gift for my 40th birthday, like an heirloom that I could – and so I was like, oh, yeah, well, let's get this, and I'll give it to our son. Is that a bevel-up plane? It is a bevel-up plane. I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing is comfort. I think that's the most important thing. The other thing was an absolute necessity is that the blade cannot be as wide as the body. Um, you do not want a shoulder plane. You do not want a rabbit plane or sure. anything like that because that just continuously cuts into the the shooting board. And if it's set up like a bench plane where there's these little steel lips on either side of the blade, then at the bottom of the runway – the vertical wall of the runway, you get this little lip that acts as a depth stop. Right. That's your bearing surface. Your for bearing the plane. surface for okay. the plane, right. So comfort and then, you know, uh, something that has a blade that's not the full width of the body. But that's all okay. these planes. The the jack bevel up jacks, bevel up smoothers, the iron miter plane, those are all like that. And then, I mean, if you have the option, go bevel up. A bevel yes. up works a little bit easier through ingrain. Yeah, I've used just my number four or five, whatever I had handy at the time. I would just use that. I went with with a bevel up again with the lower angle. It slices a little bit better, but for me, planing ingrain really beats up your your 
plane blade pretty mm-hmm. well. So if I have my regular smoothing plane and I hit, I'm working end grain a lot with that. I'll have to resharpen that if I want to go back yeah. to. You use a bit. You use white oak a lot, right? So, yeah, yeah. Right. And cherry, like I use cherry a lot, and uh, softwoods, um, and uh, and walnut, and it doesn't beat up the blade as much. But I get what you're saying. Yeah. So I went with the the dedicated bevel up plane just to save my other planes for doing what they do yeah. best. I mean, and the, and the other answer is, you know, okay, so if you're just a guy who's doing this occasionally on the weekends and you're not really completely nuts about it yet, um, I would get a bevel up jack plane probably because mm. you can use it for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You could use it as a small joiner. You could use it for ingrain. You could use it for smoothing. Um, if you're already down the slippery slope and you say you already have a smoother and so – I would, you know, then you, uh, again, I would probably get a bevel up jack first. Um, the specialized planes are if you've got a lot of disposable income or if you're like me and you, I've already got every plane I could possibly need. <laughs> so why not get one that's a bit, you know, a bit, uh, a bit extravagant. All right. Uh, let's head on to the next question from Raleigh, not Johnson. Um, this Raleigh wrote, seems like a lot of spiral-cutting router bits come in either a spiral-up cutting version or a spiral-down cutting version. What's the difference, and how do you use the various types? Mike, do you have anything to say? Well, yeah, I mean, no, I have nothing to say. <laughs> uh, basically, a spiral-up cutting bit, um, let's say you're routing out a mortise. It's going to eject the chips up and out of the mortise very well, but it will leave a slightly... It greater can, tendency to leave a ragged edge around the top of the mortise because the fibers are being lifted up as you cut. But that's okay because you're going to put a tenon in there that has shoulders. In that circumstance. It's going to cover up. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, so a spiral down cutting bit is basically going to give you a clean cut along the top edge of a surface. So let's say you're, you're routing along the edge of a piece of plywood for some reason. You know, a up cutting bit is going to give you a clean cut on the bottom. A down cutting bit is going to give you a clean cut along the top. You can also get compression bits, which are a combination of up and down cut, which are going to give you a clean cut for both. But we're really talking specialty bits for sheet goods industry. We're dealing with laminates, uh, veneer plywoods, that kind of stuff. For solid woodworking, typically I go with an upcutting bit and don't even really think about it too much. But you do more routing than I do, and you've... Yeah, I typically have always bought upcut bits. Mm -hmm. And... um, what I have run into problems with an upcut bit is I will use – I'll get like a, say, an eighth-inch upcut or a quarter-inch upcut bit, put it in my router table, and use it to make dados in little furniture, you know? You music. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've got – and what it does is it leaves a little bit of a ragged edge on that. Uh, right. dado, which can be a problem depending on how the shelf or divider or whatever goes into it. Right. And uh, Definitely, I find that the fuzz cleans off just with some fine sandpaper or something pretty easily. Yeah. The, these are, yeah, it's like a stringy fuzz. Yeah. I, now I use my uh, Japanese pairing chisel. It's a good reason to have one. It is. Yeah, extremely sharp, you know, just, and it takes it all off. And but I've noticed that fuzzy business with uh, rabbiting bits, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I do there now is I take a marking gauge, a cutting gauge technically, I guess, 
and I cut the that line of the rabbit, the, score it, yeah. and then I do the rabbit, and there's no problem. Wow! You could knife the a dado too. It's very Phil Low of you. Is he, it? He does a lot of a lot of scoring. Does he? Yeah. That's okay. something I noticed last time I was there. He scores. I mean, I, stuff I never would have thought to. You know, he does a lot of score. <laughs> Shut up, <laughs> <You> jerks. <laughs> All right, listen, I'm getting out of this segment. Um, all right, listen, uh, quick announcement uh, before we wrap up this show. Um, Michael Fortune will be on our next podcast, thanks to Matt Kenny. That's going right. Up, uh, I'm going there on Monday. Going oh, there cool. Monday. and No, actually, be, I'm there this week because the, we're recording this early. So true. when it's playing, I'll actually be coming home while it's playing. True. So Mike's going to be up in Canada uh, shooting an article with Michael, and uh, he has graciously uh, volunteered to uh, record uh, some Shop Talk Live material. Going to break out the poutine? Yeah, after we get through 20 minutes on poutine, which Michael insists on talking about all the time, we'll, uh, we'll get to I, the woodworking. Something I still don't understand, but I'm sure Michael will explain it to me in the upcoming episode. Yeah. Do you know that the place where Michael lives is like the next town over from Neil Young's birth town and where he grew up? Hmm. Sweet. Yeah. But Neil Young doesn't live there anymore, right? He's, he's in the... In the Lower 48. Occasionally you see Neil Young drunk in bars and and getting fistfights (laughs) with with him. With his biodiesel Cadillac. (laughs) No, Uh, I've never seen Neil Young up there. All right, guys. Well, here it goes. We get lots of comments in our iTunes store every week. And uh, here are a few of the highlights. Jim A. wrote in to say, I could listen to these guys geek out about woodworking every day. Each episode, they seem to touch on a topic that I've been wanting to know more about. And their mix of personalities, skill levels, and obvious passion for the craft keep the banter flowing. Keep up the good work, and please consider doing these more often than bi-weekly. Aaron Lee wrote, Hey guys, love the show, plus I might add, meaning I add, the sound effects. Oh, yeah. look at that. Just recently found the podcast, and I love it. Very interesting material and awesome banter. Don't you have a cousin named Aaron? Shut up. Been a digital <laughs> subscriber for about six months after getting turned, tuned onto the magazine in print by my uncle, who is a cabinet maker. Awesome. Keep up the great work, guys. And finally... From Wood Dude, who remarks, quote, this ain't no turd, end quote, from its humble beginnings a couple of years ago to its present form as a high-octane all-things-wood podcast, Shop Talk Live has become my number one favorite podcast in iTunes. To everyone who says they want it weekly, I say, weekly? The heck with that. Let's have it daily. Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on June 21st for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at tauntin.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. 